So the thing that bugs me is that HR people drop knowledge like that and jargon and business terms when they want to end a conversation. And it's like, I'm sorry you're there to help these people. You're there to provide service. You're there basically as customer support for the organization. At least you should be. So if someone's bugging you because they don't understand a policy, that's more you than it is them. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we talk to recruiters, hiring managers, and occasionally HR professionals to lift the curtain on the hiring process so you can better understand how hiring decisions get made and how they affect your career. This week's a special episode. I actually recorded it over 18 months ago for another podcast I used to do called Career Paths, and I never got to air it. It's with one of the people I look up to the most in HR and the career space. It's Lori Rudiman. She has for a long time lifted the curtain on HR and hiring processes and has tried to help people kind of hack HR in a really productive way and show some of the things that happen and the inner workings of corporations. Things like how to ask for severance even if you quit things on how review processes get made in companies, just really insightful things that a lot of people don't understand. And I think it takes a lot of courage to show up the way that Lori has and talk about these things. I highly encourage her book called Betting on You. I'm going to reread it now in the new year. It's just a book that really helps you think about agency and career and how you are in control of this thing that affects so much of your life, your career. It was a really amazing episode. I'm so excited to publish it and release it. And I'm incredibly honored that she did the podcast with me. So I hope you all enjoy listening to it and as learn as much as I did from recording it. Thanks everyone for joining today. We are with Lori Rudiman, who honestly, I'm still kind of pinching myself that I'm getting to chat with her. Uh, so only I loved her book and I love all the content she puts out there. And I love her kind of no nonsense approach to careers in HR and, and really what's tricky and someone who sort of gives the behind the curtains view, uh, which I think is amazing. But I think it'd be better to hear from Lori directly about her and, and who she is. So Lori, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, thanks for having me. You know, I used to begin these podcasts with the litany of things I've done professionally until I realized that nobody cares. So I like to tell people that I volunteer and I foster puppies and kittens and I try to get out in my community and I can do all of that because I earn a living in and around the world of human resources. So that's probably the best way to explain what I do. Amazing. And you're a podcaster, writer, a lot of very cool things. We'll talk about her book and how everyone should read it. But OK, so we like to kick this off typically with the same question, which is when in your life did you start to think kind of more deliberately about what you wanted to do when you grow up? You know, that may not be what you ended up doing, but you're saying, hey, this is I could imagine doing this and kind of making money doing this. You know, I uh, started my career in 1995 when Friends was on TV for the first time, which is weird because it makes me pretty old. I'm 47 years old. And I just fell into the world of human resources. And I knew right away that I didn't like it. It was really obvious. And I toiled in and around HR from 1995 to 2018. And that's a long period of time, right, where I was writing, speaking, being a practitioner. And then around 2018, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a writer. Why am I not writing like regularly? I was blogging, I was doing marketing, but I wasn't writing the way I wanted to write. 
And so I went out and got a book coach and uh, asked, how do I write a book? And he taught me what I needed to do and got an agent. And I ended up writing a book about the world of work, which is very meta. But it wasn't until I did that exercise and I actually invested in myself that I really think my career took off. So yeah, it was not until 2018, even though I'd been giving out career advice for, you know, the better part of two decades. Isn't that amazing? I always love the saying, like the cobbler's kid's shoes. <laughs> yeah. When I worked at WeWork, you know, people would expect us to be like experts in real estate. It's like, don't come to our office. We're still figuring some things out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was pretty awesome, but it's like, eh, you know, uh, it's amazing how, you know, in the accountants, the books, it's always kind of funny how we just sort of put ourselves last. I think that's right. And, you know, for me, I had been in and around a world where I saw very successful people do smart things and stupid things. And so I always felt like I had good stories and good ideas and just anecdotes that I could share with people. I've studied psychology. I've studied some law. You know, I've got this really big dilettante kind of portfolio. But when it came to my own career, I'm like, eh, I don't know. I'm just winging it. So <laughs> I decided to stop winging it and actually get serious about writing and it may be the best thing I ever did for my life because it allowed me to figure out, okay, if this is what I'm going to do to monetize my life in a way that doesn't kill me, then how do I do the other things in my life that bring me joy and make sure that everything kind of has its place? So I don't know. Um, the past five or six years have been about reconfiguration. And all that while, though, I'm acting like a smarty pants giving out advice. So, you know. Suckers. <laughs> well, let's talk about the journey. Yeah. Because um, that's awesome. Because I think, you know, I, I think a lot of people, right? And I think so more so now than ever, we're like, we're working longer. We're starting to work earlier, you know, however we define that, you know, but my daughter wants to be making money on YouTube and she's eight, you know, so. I mean, who doesn't want to make money on YouTube? That's easy money right there. <laughs> I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It's so true. So let's talk about the journey. I know that like music was a part of the early part of your life. And so when did you kind of like start working? You said you stumbled into HR. And I think a lot of people stumble into their first job. Uh, I think awareness like really drives what we think we can and or could do. So how did it kick off for you? Yeah, you know, I don't really remember a time when I wasn't working because I had started babysitting at a young age. I'm the oldest of four kids. And I went and lived with my dad when I was 14 years old. And I'm like, well, I don't want to hang out all the time, you know? So I went and got a job scooping ice cream. And I was always just perpetually in motion. When I went to college, I was the first person in my family to ever do that. And I realized pretty quickly I could not afford to go to law school. So I went to my career services department, my work studies guru. You know, I just talked to everybody. I'm like, what am I going to do? And someone found me a paid internship at a candy factory on the north side of St. Louis. And they told me it's in human resources. And I'm like, what's that? They're like, we don't know, but we'll find out together, you know. And I walked in and it was a big mess. This candy factory was unionized and they had three shifts a day. They operated 24-7. And it was right at the beginning of the Yugoslavian War. And there was no Google out back then. So I had to go to Ask Jeeves and be like, what is Yugoslavia? You know, like, I don't know. What is Bosnia? What is Albania? And in my town of St. Louis, we were taking on so many refugees and they were coming to work at the candy factory and the Serbian refugees were fighting with the Bosnian refugees on the candy factory floor. And this is all nuts, right? So unions, fights, immigration, 
sexual assault at the candy factory, sexual harassment at the candy factory. I'm 20 years old, right? And I thought to myself, oh yeah, this is where it's at. <laughs> like, this is so punk rock, you know, like this is humanity at its base level interesting. And so, you know, I just kind of stuck with it and learned how to recruit, learned how to hire, and a career in human resources was born. And I never did go take that LSAT. I couldn't afford to take the LSAT, but I never took it because I thought, what am I going to do? Take on more student debt just to be an employment lawyer and end up right here, right back at the candy factory making X amount of dollars. So I decided to stick with human resources, but just be more of a generalist or is what they call it today, a business partner. (laughs) Maybe I'll rant about a business partner. That's what I was totally businessy with my shaved head and hidden tattoos. That's right. (laughs) Why did you think law school prior to doing this was the right path for you? Well, you know, I believe in women's rights. So that was really important to me. And I believe in workers' rights. And I also believe that your work is not your worth. And you have the right to good health care and emotionally, physically, and psychologically safe work environment. You have the right to do whatever the heck you want with your body. Like, I believe all of these things about autonomy and that work should fund that, not the other way around. And I thought the way that I could make a difference in the world was by going to law school, really understanding labor law and, you know, human rights and civil rights and trying to be an advocate for people. But nobody's an advocate for someone who already has $50,000 in student loans in 1997. You know, like a lot of people were saying, yeah, do it. Yeah, do it. And I'm like, wait a second. I'm going to bury myself in debt that I'm never going to be able to get out from under because law school at the time was a hundred grand and it's more now, you know? So I thought I can't afford to do this. I have to be my own advocate and find another path. So um, I just play a lawyer on TV, you know, and (laughs) whenever I have a real law question, though, I do talk to my friend Kate Bischoff. I don't know if anybody out there knows her. Uh, She's pretty amazing. Find her on Twitter. She is my in-house legal counsel and I love her. Yeah. It's always good to have one of those. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. That's so it was, it was really kind of like intention and mission oriented. Yeah, I like to think so. And you just kind of thought that was the occupation that was going to enable you to do that. Yeah, I like to think so at the time. You know, I mean, I don't really believe in generational stereotyping, but I do believe in seasons of life. And when you're in your early 20s, you think you can take on the world and you're not so concerned about earning money because you think, ah, If I do what I love, the money's going to come, right? That's the old lie they tell you. And I quickly learned that money doesn't come, not unless you fight for it. You know, whether you're doing what you love or you're doing what you hate, got to fight for what's yours. And it didn't make sense to me to actually pay to go to work, which is what taking on more student loan debt would have become. Kind of like the way people pay for childcare to go to work. They're essentially paying to go to work. It makes absolutely no sense. So I didn't want to further participate in that kind of system. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so now you have a career that starts and went for a while. Well, I mean, so so it's still going, but in HR and human resources, which I hate the label of that anyway, but these resources that are humans. Yeah, yeah, that was me. I was very human. And managing like the complexities of, you know, this kind of tension between employer and employee and like trying to be this advocate for the employee, but also look out for the employer. And it seems like you kind of navigated that tension for a while. Well, I tried. I often failed. And so I began my professional career working at this company called Monsanto in St. Louis. And right away, I kind of 
It was like one of those things where they offered me plenty of money. So I said yes. And then I learned what the company did. And I'm like, oh, wait, I should have done my research. You know, like this company's terrible, but I met my husband. Like a lot of good things came out of it. And we were at this moment where my husband was getting promoted and we were just dating at the time and living together. And, you know, we could get domestic partner benefits. They were going to relocate us, but I had to quit my job. They didn't have a job available for me. And I kind of quickly realized that nobody was really an advocate for workers, even though they say they're advocates, right? Not even anybody in my own HR department. It was like, your husband's going to get, or your boyfriend at the time is going to get promoted. Lucky you, you have domestic partner benefits. You're going to relocate, but we don't have a job for you. You're out of luck, you know, so make a tough decision. And I thought, these are like the adult decisions that other people have to make. So it was kind of like my first exposure to that. So we moved. I had to look for another human resources job. Like it was like a big upheaval in my life, you know, and the next couple of jobs I had, I really focused on laying people off. And that was a weird season of my life as well, because I was excited to be working, excited to be paying off my debt. And then I took these positions at companies like Kemper Insurance, and I ended up working at Pfizer again with my husband. And all I did was fire people. I mean, it is not it is not inaccurate to say that I probably laid off 10,000 people. Like, that's not like a joke, you know? And it was such a strange time in my life because I was like full of promise. And I thought, you know, here I am. I'm about want to start a family and do all these exciting things. And I'm a force of disruption in the world. So yeah, to your point about human resources, we say we're an advocate for people, but we rarely are. We're definitely there to protect the employer. We're definitely there to mitigate legal exposure, right? We're definitely there to make sure people don't sue companies. And that's it. That's what we do. Yeah. In my, in my more moments of cynicism, I've called HR the veil in front of legal. Not necessarily fair, but <laughs> I've, I've been known to say that. Like sometimes we do payroll, you know, like sometimes we do other stuff, but we do the things that we do. We keep, you know, the trains running on time, the schedules tight. We keep people happy so that they don't sue the organization. Ultimately, that's what this is all about, you know. And we are a function that came about out of a very paternalistic way of looking at the world. The executives and the CEOs were the fathers, right? They were focused on strategy and money, and they didn't want to get their hands dirty with people. And so there is actually a mother of human resources back in the day, and I, I'm blanking on her name, but she was like the first HR lady ever and she was there to kind of mother the workforce, to make sure they were getting their needs met, to make sure they weren't complaining to dad. And that, with that history, is so sexist. It's so patriarchal. It's also very racist because they cared about these full-time white workers, white male workers, and everybody else from marginalized communities really didn't exist. So the more I learned about all of this, the more I was like, dang, I need to get out just need to get out. Oh, I feel like I can talk for hours. All right. Okay. So now you're in the profession, but I also, you know, from reading your book, I don't feel like you just sort of accepted it, right? Like that is the sort of expected function and how it's supposed to operate. But I feel like you consistently pushed for like advocating for the employee in the most that you could. And then when you'd sort of run into a wall, then, you know, you'd take some action. Well, I tried. And thank you for noticing that. Like, I really did try to be an advocate. But 
when I hit my final brick wall at Pfizer, I'm like, I have to leave because there's no more that I can do. Like I am completely and totally ineffective at this job. And in fact, I might be making things worse, worse for myself, worse for other people. It was not good to have people associate with me when I worked at Pfizer because I was known as, especially towards the end of my career, someone who was a troublemaker, someone who was incredibly unhappy And that's not great. And I bear responsibility for that. Like I put myself in that job. I took that job offer. I did the job as best I could. And when I realized I wasn't a good fit, even though the job was terrible, I took myself out. But it was definitely a process to do that. And you're right. To this day, I still try to find other ways to accept the system that we have, but change it. Like I'm not going to be able to burn it down. That's not physically possible But if I can make small and incremental changes or inspire other people to make change, that's good enough for me. So for someone considering or actively in the field of HR who went into, because I see a lot of people who want to go into HR when I might be doing like a career coaching session is I really want to help people. I want to go into HR. And I say, wait a second, like both of those things can be true on their own, but let's like really understand what HR does. And ultimately it's a service for the company to manage a lot of the very legitimate complexities that come with managing a workforce. But it's not necessarily that you are like the pure advocate for the employee base. So what what advice would you have for people that kind of have this ambition or intention and kind of like the people, organization, you you know, org design component of HR and things like that? Well, I have a friend by the name of Lars Schmidt, and he really believes that there is a world where progressive people practices and capitalism can coexist. So I would recommend those individuals connect with Lars Schmidt, go into his ecosystem, really get to know him. I don't think any of that's true. And Lars and I are dear, dear friends, but I don't believe you can be pro-people and pro-progressive people practices and exist in a world of capitalism. So for people out there who love people and think organizations have answers and they can be the solutions, maybe there's like 0.1% of organizations where that's true. And maybe they're optimists and maybe they want to go be like Sisyphus and try to roll that ball up the hill, right? But for most of us in this profession, the change we make is incremental. And what I tell people is that you fix work not by getting an HR job, not by being a leader or director. You fix work by fixing yourself first. Live the absolute best life that you can live. Be an example of happiness and moderation and emotional regulation. Be an example of self-leadership where no matter where you are in the org chart, you bring your A game, you have integrity. And when your work is done, let it be done. Go live an amazing life, right? That's how you fix work, by fixing yourself first and being a happy awesome human being. And I think if you do that, you become a peer-to-peer leader, you set the tone, you show other people how it's done, and maybe then we make some progress. But when we try to do it from the top down and branded in a company logo, it becomes mired with the complexities of profit and revenue. It becomes mired in politics. It also becomes mired in racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, and ultimately it's not owned by people. The effort is owned by the corporation. So the corporation that says we believe in people right now could change their minds tomorrow. So I try to get people off this idea that there's a future in HR and people analytics. I mean, yeah, there are jobs there, but why would you want to do that to yourself? 
you know, like there are other ways to earn money. I think that's such an important point because I, you know, as I talk to people, their their expectations of like what their job is supposed to provide for them have gotten to a point where it's really unrealistic. I was talking to another career coach at one point. He's like, it's more than like their matrimony. Like you're supposed to pay me really well. You're supposed to give me all the time off that I want. You're supposed to let me do what I want. You're supposed to let me switch within the company. You're so, you know, it's like, that's all awesome, but we also have to figure out how to make money, Like you know? You know, my friend and author, Eric Barker, talks about how back in the day, we used to have these really important relationships. You know, we'd go out bowling, we'd go to church or temple, you know, we we spent more time with our families. And as those relationships have shrunk, we've looked to other things, these parasocial relationships to fill the gaps. And one of those relationships we've looked to is work. And we now expect work to fulfill us, to offer flexibility, to do all of these amazing things. And it's a lie. It's an absolute stinking lie. I'm trying not to swear on your podcast here, but... Yeah, you can. I try not to in case my kids listen. But uh, actually, (laughs) I should joke about what my three-year-old said to me. She says, Daddy, why do you say fuck? And I was like, hmm, okay. (laughs) Yes, we're not going to repeat that. But it is absolutely... The lies work tells us are convenient because as our personal relationships shrink... We can like go feast on the lies from the CEO that they love us, they care about us, they want us to be fulfilled. So it becomes pretty toxic and pretty crazy. But you're absolutely right that part of this is our fault. And so one of the things that I teach and I wrote about in Betting on You is this idea of professional detachment, where you treat your, you know, your workplace, your colleagues, your boss, like they are your very favorite client. You know, how would you treat a client? Well, you wouldn't put a lot of emotional guilt and baggage on a client. You would do the best you can. You try to make them happy. Maybe you'd give them the Ritz-Carlton, you know, gold standard of treatment. But at the end of the day, you go home. And I think the more we do that, the more we have a little bit of detachment, the happier and the more emotionally regulated we're going to be about the world of work. Yeah, I completely agree. And what I think it's, you know, it's kind of all entangled in how we value ourselves and, you know, uh, and sort of complexities of the world. But like what, what I talk to people about is what I see is this really funny change in behavior when someone's like freelancing versus someone's an employee. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's really kind of crazy um, because just like their expectations are so different. And I'm like, look, you're just working on our new freelance relationship called salary. Right. And so think about this as a client. It's like the level of expectation changes. And I think we're kind of starting to see that break right now. I mean, maybe until we decouple employment from healthcare in the United States, there's a challenge. So, you know, you're right. When people are freelancing, they are hustling in the worst possible way. And oftentimes they get converted. We'll use that old 90s phrase, right? They get converted to an FTE and they take this deep breath like, I've got it made now. It's going to be fine. It's like, dude, they can still fire you in a heartbeat your career could end tomorrow because they don't like the color of your hair, right? You know, like it could be, they don't like the fact that you're showing your tattoos. They don't like your new piercing. What, Whatever it is, you could be fired in a heartbeat. There's this idea that there's something different about being a full-time employee. It's just a construct that we make up. We make it up and it's actually unfair. And it oftentimes perpetuates more of a bifurcation between women and men or white people in, you know, marginalized communities. Like this idea of contractor versus full-time employee is toxic. It's terrible. I've seen it at big companies where they're like almost, they have a different color badge. Yeah, they have to go through a different door. It's weird. 
But I do think that one of the things that comes from being a freelancer contractor consultant, and I'm not like pro gig worker or not, but it's one of the things I see when someone's an FTE is this like abdication of career growth and career development, like to the company. It's their job now to tell me my career path. It's their job to tell me how to ascend through this function. And I think like kind of a lot of what you talk about is, no, it's ultimately your job. It's your career. You, you bet on yourself. And so you invest in skill building. You invest in technology to make you more efficient. Like, you know, I remember once at WeWork, I had someone who's like, I'm going to be so much more efficient with an iPad, but I'm not going to buy it unless the company gets it for me. And I'm just like, look, I get it. I'll try to get it for you. But like, don't you want to do everything you can do to put your best foot forward? Clearly not. I mean, the answer for that individual <laughs> right. is no. You know, my friend William Tenkup talks about this all the time where, you know, back in the day, you did abdicate responsibility for your career development to your corporation because they told you to. They were like, we gotcha. You know, and the nice thing about that is maybe they did have you. Maybe they had programs. But a lot of times what they would say is, you know what? you've hit the top of your level. You're not going to go any further. So they also defined you in a really toxic way for some women, for some men, for people like my dad, where they were like, you know what? You've gone just about as far as you're going to go. You're never going to make director. Like, how does how does that feel for someone to hear that, right? So when you give the company that responsibility, you also give them a piece of your identity, which is terrible. We wouldn't do that in any other circumstance, and yet we do that with work. And so I think you're right that there's a different conversation that's beginning to happen in the workplace, but it's still like you have all these HR professionals and learning directors and associates and learning executives who are like, oh, we're going to create these great learning paths and, you know, we're going to create these micro experiences and like, why don't you just encourage your workforce to pick up a book and also give them the time to do that or let them take a short course or give them the freedom to get more selective about what they want to learn? Because all learning is worthwhile. If you're learning, you're growing, you're growing, you're thriving. That's the freaking point of life, right? It doesn't have to be about work. It could be about science. It could be about agronomy. Like, go learn something new. You're going to take that good stuff and bring it back to work, whether you know it or not. Yeah, and then there's that tension that ultimately, like, the company's going to guide you towards what's best for the company. And I say that in a, like, that's not an accusatory or negative thing. Like, the company needs to exist, right? But it's also, like, let's be objective and honest about it. Like, if I'm a product manager and now I want to go be a UX designer, it is, n there's really very little in the company, in the, like, in the company's best interest to make that happen. Some companies can do it. Google can afford it. Some can be, like, long-term which is amazing. And I wish we could all do that. But like in practical sense, that's hard for a lot of companies to absorb. Most businesses in America are, you know, are few, you know, this are fewer than like 100 people, right? You know, there's no slack in the system to say to someone, hey, I know I'm a plumber right now, but I want to be a nurse and I expect you to help me with this. Like the owner of the plumbing company is going to be like, see you later. You know, I, I need plumbers. I don't need nurses. And I don't think that's unreasonable. But, you know, I also like this idea that if someone comes to you and says, I'm a plumber and I want to become a nurse, can you help me? Maybe you don't offer them financial help, but emotional support is always okay, right? You know, make sure you have the right PTO, <laughs> which we should all have for everybody so that person can go do what they need to do. If you can offer flexibility to your gray collar workforce, do that, you know, 
There are a lot of ways you can be creative and no employee is forever. No job is forever. And so it's all about like maximizing the moments you have and then being okay that someone's going to leave. That's what work is all about. Yeah, that's another thing I see that, and I think this is changing. I'd be curious to get your take on it is the notion of loyalty. I think it's a it's a really toxic word when it comes to employment. Like, okay, and in a marriage, I see the place of loyalty. That's the handshake we made. But with an employer, I feel like people approach it with this notion of this like indefinite monogamous, monogamous relationship. And it's like, that, well, that's just like empirically untrue and super one-sided because when the shit hits the fan and you can't afford it, you're going to drop me like a sack of bricks. Like, of course, I'm going to job search. Of course, I'm going to entertain other offers. But you can't like give me the side eye for doing that. It's so funny that we're talking about this because number one, um, I'm much more comfortable talking about this than I am about my career journey. So thank you for pivoting. That was all kinds of awkward for me. So I'll talk about other people's careers all day long. I am currently on LinkedIn with one of the top videos on their platform on LinkedIn Learning. And it was one of the fastest growing videos they've ever had. And it's called uh, Be the Manager That People Won't Leave. And I like it. Like, I like the course because it's all about like creating a culture of like psychological safety. But someone said to me, isn't that really weird attachment? Like, isn't that a form of dysfunction? And don't you want people to come and join you, do great work, and then eventually go on and move on and do other things? I'm like, yeah, but LinkedIn won't pay me to say that, you know? So that there is this idea that you want to keep people for as long as you can and you want to hold on to them. And it's so expensive to hire and retrain. And, you know, my answer before making that LinkedIn course was like, yeah, that's the cost of doing business, right? But here I am on LinkedIn saying, no, be the manager that people don't want to leave. But I don't necessarily know how I feel about that. I mean, yes, we want you to be a great manager, but people can leave. It's okay. This is not servitude. They can go on and do other things. So, yeah. Yeah, I have such a like visceral negative reaction to the idea of like retention mechanisms, <laughs> right? It's like, oh, it's like, you want the best retention mechanism? Be a great place to work and like be honest with people, give them work that's fulfilling and give them an ability to make decisions for their life with as much information as possible. And that's all you can do. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, I think we're kindred spirits here. And I think, you know, there are a lot of different ways to get to this. And uh, the word retention is a little HR-ish, to be honest, you know, so I hate that as well. But I like the idea of really fighting for your people, because if work is a truly capitalistic endeavor, as much as people fight to get a job, the workplace should fight to retain you. The workplace should constantly be reselling itself to workers and saying, we're great. You want to work here. You want to spend your time here. So I'm okay with all of that. What I'm not okay with, to your earlier point, is the codependency that tends to kind of brew. And that, whether you're in a relationship with a partner or a boss, codependency never ends well. So I'm going to have some fun here at the risk of making some HR enemies, but that's okay because I've had my some tussles with some HR folks on TikTok. And one of the things that drives me nuts is that HR always resorts to the word legal. That's not legal. That's illegal. And I'm like, (laughs) that's kind of bullshit. I know that that's not illegal. Like, so I put out a video around like all the things you could negotiate for. They nitpicked my words. Like that's called total rewards. I'm like, yeah, no human being knows that that's what it's called. I call it total compensation because that's what a human would understand. But, you know, there are a lot of things that you actually can push back on. And like a negotiation is really complicated and benefits are really complicated. And these things are highly regulated. But one of my pet peeves with HR is they... They sort of flex their 
technical nuanced understanding of all these like company procedures that they wrote. It's kind of like SOX compliance. It's the biggest sham ever. You write the (laughs) rules that you then have to pass. But I feel like there's something about like that HR does that. So I guess like, you know, since you like to give people the hacks. Is that just a rant? Do you just want me to know that about you? You know, like. (laughs) (laughs) How can people navigate those? Like, how can they feel empowered in these like very one-sided discussions? Can you, can you ever maybe just recognize that, you know, maybe recognize there is always a power differential. And you can also call bullshit on some HR professional who's throwing out some legalese because unless they're a lawyer, as we've learned through my own career history, they're not a lawyer. So unless they are actually certified, they passed the bar, they're regulated in their state, they probably don't know what they're talking about. So, or they may know what they're talking about, but you have every right to ask good questions and to ask for clarification. So the thing that bugs me is that HR people drop knowledge like that in jargon and business terms when they want to end a conversation. And it's like, I'm sorry you're there to help these people. You're there to provide service. You're there basically as customer support for the organization. At least you should be. So if someone's bugging you because they don't understand a policy, that's more you than it is them. So spend the time with them, you know? So I'm with you. I mean, I I can't say that I haven't been like, oh, that's illegal and I've been wrong in my life, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm, I'm a repetitive HR professional, you know? So I'm on the right side of history, I think, right now. And the other thing is that I feel like people speak about these HR edicts and they're really what they're referring to is like, if you work at the Fortune 500, some of these things are very hard to do. But to your point, like the majority of companies are under 100 employees. So there actually is like much more leeway and you can actually advocate for yourself and negotiate, not to get into negotiation, but more so like conceptually negotiate for a lot of things. Yeah, flexibility for opportunities for growth, even for compensation down the road, like you can ask for things. And what's the worst that's going to happen? Someone's going to say no. I will tell you, people don't know how to ask for things and advocate for themselves. So I wrote about this in my book, like happened more than once. It's like Tuesday at 4.50. I'm getting ready to go because I don't like to work. I want to be out of here at five, you know, and someone knocks on my door and it's like, I want to talk to you about getting a raise. I'm like, it is 4.50 on a Tuesday. Why now? Why are you making the case now? And also, you know that we have a season uh, to compensation. So why wouldn't you do this more in alignment with the season or start a conversation with me, which is what you're trying to do, but do it over lunch or do it at a time when I'm more receptive to it, not when I'm packing my stuff and putting on my running shoes, you know? So (laughs) I never got that. So if you're up for teaching a negotiation class, especially on TikTok, the world needs that. The world definitely needs it. Because yeah, I kind of approach the world as like everything's negotiable. Maybe that is a little bit towards like my rule breaking just sort of way of being. But I just feel like everything's negotiable. And yeah, I just think that's where like HR flex is like, no, you can't negotiate healthcare. I'm like, that's not true. Yeah. And you can't tell me what to do. I can get put into like, and I'm like, I've literally implemented it as the CEO of a company where I have different tiers and like you can be in a different tier and it's like, And like the business world is too smart to like let anything not be true. So it frustrates me when they kind of flex like you can't do that. That's not this. That's not this. And like that's why people get mad at HR. Well, I will tell you something. You know, when I was working in human resources and laying people off and really unhappy, I'd look around at the world and I would be like, why not me? You know, why? Why do I not have a company car? Why don't I have, you know, all these different things in my life? Why am I unhappy? Why don't I have a personal trainer? 
Our CEO's personal trainer doesn't look like he uses it, but he has it, you know, like stuff like that. You know, like, why don't I have these things? And the answer is because I haven't asked for them or I haven't fought for them. And once I started thinking about that, like the answer is me, like I could have whatever I want. I just need to make a plan, need to figure it out and I need to get there. And I started to make that plan. Things fell into place. They didn't fall into place overnight. Again, I left my job at Pfizer in 2008 and I didn't write a book until 2018, right? It was a full decade before I start that process for a full decade. But that process was really important of saying, why not me and how do I get there? And that's part of what I try to teach out there, especially to HR professionals, because if you can start to improve your own experience in this world, you can lift up the experiences for other people. Because if HR is unhappy, everybody's unhappy. And I think that's the fascinating thing for me. There's so many HR professionals out there right now who are freaking miserable. It's like, well, if you're sad, if you're depressed, if you're angry, if you're underpaid, how can you create this amazing employee experience that you're bragging about? Like, it's impossible. So start with yourself. You fix work by fixing yourself first. I mean, it's really what I believe. Yeah, I, I just, I, I couldn't like scream that from the mountaintops <laughs> louder. And I think that's where people really struggle, you know, and I think that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on what, what I've kind of in, in like arriving at calling like ambition shaming. We live in this sort of funny world where like wanting to pursue happiness and fulfillment at work is like an indulgence. It's like, well, there's so many other people who are unhappy and miserable. That's not like, that's a privilege to get to enjoy, to, to like your job. And you know, what loving your job, we, we talked about that, to like not hate your job, let's call it. And I think that's unfortunate, but I think it's out there, but I'm curious to see what you think. Well, uh, maybe, you know, I don't pay attention to people enough to know, but I will tell you this, <laughs> when you live the kind of life that you can with integrity and with purpose, right? And you're focused on being of service and you're focused on just living like an awesome life and having great relationships, you really don't give a shit what other people think. Like for me, I want to write my next book, right? I'm real excited about it. I'm working on it. I'm working hard. That's the season of my life. If somebody were to say to me, you know, Lori, you're working really hard on a book and your life is not balanced right now. I'd be like, who the hell asked you? You know? And I think if more people just kind of stayed in their lane, mind their minded their own business and didn't really compare themselves to other people, we wouldn't be having these kinds of weird conversations about privilege. You know, like everything is a privilege theoretically in this world, but I don't know. I'm just rambling at this point, but it just it bugs me when people have opinions when they're not asked for. So that's where I'm going with that. <laughs> yeah, I agree with it. And I, and I love, like one of the analogies I try to use a lot is the the sort of airplane, put your mask on first. Oh, sure, yeah. And it's like, you really have to. Like all these other things, when you're trying to think about everyone else and what everyone else thinks, you got to take care of yourself first. You got to like, you're learning, you're growing. Don't worry about what other people make. We have pay disparity issues. So not trying to trivialize that, but like focus on what you need, what matters to you that like, your life's great, you're pumped to jump out of bed, then focus on the other stuff. You know, one of my favorite sayings ever is that comparison is the thief of joy. I think about that all the time. When I look at other people's books, when I look at other people's careers, when I think about what would it have been like had I stayed in human resources? Like how come I didn't have a Lori Rudiman to like cheer me on and give me good advice, right? I had nobody. How come I didn't have that? And if I had just had that, maybe I would have like a VP title now and I'd have PTO and a 401k. And it's like, yeah, 
F it. I don't want any of that. You know? And also, I see people with all of that and they want my life. So I'm doing okay. Comparison is definitely the thief of joy. Although I would like some PTO. That would be amazing. That'd be great. That's an awesome quote. All right. Well, one tactical thing then, jumping around a little bit, the chapter in your book that I refer to everyone and that, every, like, well, not everyone, but a lot of people, and and their eyes, light, their eyes just like light up when I'm like, hey, when you quit, you can get severance. <laughs> They're just like, what? Like, that makes no sense. I'm quitting. That's not even fair that I'm leaving. And I'm like, nope, you can do it. And I always like try to find your blog post on it or your podcast on it. But let's talk about this a little bit and kind of advocating for yourself more in that context is that like people don't realize that everything is a negotiation. And that if you want to grow your career and you want to do what's right for you, like that's actually a moment that you can do something like that. Well, I told you I've laid off close to 10,000 people over a couple of organizations. And what I realized is that all these executives were leaving with baller contracts. Like, and then the rest of the you know, schmucks out there were leaving with like eight weeks. And then there were people who were quitting before getting laid off because they were like, I'd rather have a job than severance. I'm like, you know, you can have both. So in my book, in chapter eight, like go to the library. You don't even have to buy my book, right? Just like go look this up. I teach a methodology in the book that I coach people on, which is to kind of understand, have you had layoffs in your organization? Has anybody left? Think about whether or not your job has changed since you took your job. And then to try to make the case that maybe you fall under the terms and conditions of an existing severance program within your organization. And because the world is weird, most companies have had layoffs lately, right? Big and small. So there may be a way for you to say, my job has changed. I know the company is going through some changes as well. And I'm interested in having a conversation about leaving and leaving with integrity and leaving where it's a win-win. And I don't know if you're open to that. They can perp walk you out the door and that's fine. You got another job lined up. Don't worry about it. Like people always overstate, like, I don't want to burn any bridges. Eh, you're dead to the company anyway, right? <laughs> you know, the minute you walk out the door. So if you can walk out the door with a severance package and a new job lined up, God, you've hit the freaking lottery. You know, it's amazing. So I have done this myself at a couple of organizations because some HR lady taught this to me. <laughs> I've coached hundreds of people on this. Nobody has ever been fired for asking for a severance package. Some people have been told no, but I'm hitting a pretty high percentage here. If there is a severance plan in your organization and you ask for it, you got a good chance of getting it. So read the chapter. Let me know if you have any questions. But yeah, to your point, everything is negotiable. I love that. And every time I tell people, they're just like, what? Like, yep. <laughs> and, I, and I've seen it over and over again, you know, having getting to be an executive and hitting, sitting in executive meetings, like as people talk about it is very real. I just coached a woman not too long ago on Twitter on DM how to do this because she's like, I heard you know how to do this. I'm like, let me tell you. And it like in 280 characters, I'm like, this is what you do. And she came back. She's like, oh, yeah, I got a severance package. I got eight weeks. I'm like, better than nothing. You know, like this is amazing. So, um, yeah, why leave empty handed if you could leave with like a little seed money for maybe a small business you want to start or maybe vacation money or to pay back that 401k loan that you took, right? Like uh, you could do a lot with that kind of money. So, yeah, ask for it. I love that one so much. Okay, so a few years ago, you land on what I'd say is like the intersection between interest, ability and 
commercialization. What do you feel like unlocked that for you that someone else who's kind of wrestling with, I want to enjoy what I'm doing. I don't want it to like run my life, but I want to not hate my job. What were the things that helped you unlock that? Number one, therapy. Number two, eating right and exercising. Fueling my body in a way that allowed my brain to think in a less anxious way. Seriously, like people are always like, "Ah, exercise, ah, diet and agree. Like you could be healthy and fit at any size. Not telling people to lose weight. I'm not telling people to do what I've done or follow my path. I'm telling people to give your brain enough nourishment and enough love so that you can think intelligently about what's going on around you. So I would say therapy, exercise, eating right, taking myself less seriously, reading more, really investing in my own continuous learning. And I think my secret sauce to figuring out what to do with my life has been through volunteering. Because when you're around other professionals who are like doing something with cats or doing something with puppies, right? You get to hang out with cats and puppies, right? Or hang out with the thing you love, but you also get to learn about humanity in a different way. You get to see people in very readable ways. You get to understand, do I have it okay? Do people have it worse? I don't know. It just gave me such an appreciation for humankind and what was really going out in the world, going on out in the world, that whenever someone's really stuck at work, the first thing I recommend is volunteering. So yeah, I would say that. That's such an awesome tip. It's such a good one because it's so true. And there's something about volunteering that even as soon as you get like paid one penny, your brain just changes completely. So if everyone's there volunteering together, you get like a truer version of the people you're working with. Yeah, and you also get to use your brain in a different way, which benefits you when you then go back to work. You have a little bit more perspective. You've seen how things look in a different angle. I don't know. It's just such a really important thing to do. People will often say to me, well, I don't have time to volunteer. I'm like, got a TikTok account, got Facebook, got Twitter. You got time to volunteer. It's something like 25 to 30 minutes a week of volunteerism. The act of looking out instead of looking in is enough to break that depressive, disruptive cycle that we're all in. So go spend an hour filing at your local domestic violence shelter. You don't even have to work with victims, right? You could just file stuff. You can sort through clothes at a consignment store for like the homeless and the unsheltered. There are a million ways that you can just go contribute for an hour a week and make a difference. So, and I can't state it enough. It was absolutely a game changer in my life and also just brought me a lot of love and a lot of joy. So, yeah. I love that one. Yeah, I'm like thinking about like how I'm going to take my kids to go start volunteering. I'm like putting it in. (laughs) Thinking about where you're going to volunteer now. I love it. Well, Lori, that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your career journey. Uh, Even though that was uncomfortable, it's been an incredible career and I'm excited to see all the things you're going to continue to do uh, and your sort of new career as a writer. <laughs> well, it's a real honor to come on and talk about the world of work. It is absolutely cringeworthy to talk about myself. And the minute that it feels okay and I do it well, I've got to go do something else because I never want to get so polished that people are like, oh, she's good at this. I'm not good at this, you know, and I don't want to get good at talking about myself. So thank you for the opportunity, though, to talk about some of these ideas. Well, how can people follow along? What are the best places to, well, I mean, let's hear about your book, your podcast. Where else can people follow along with all the the amazing things you're putting out there? You know, I think the easiest way is just to go to my website. And there's a real simple hack for that, which is punkrock.com. 
hr.com. They can follow the whole ecosystem over there and eventually land on my Instagram account to see some of the animals that I tend to foster from time to time. So yeah. Awesome. We'll make sure to link to these in the show notes wherever you're listening or maybe watching. We'll see. Um, But Lori, this was amazing. Thank you so, so much. Well, I'm pleased to be here. Thanks again for the invite. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We want to give people that inside view to what it looks like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.